Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 499 of the podcast. It's February 28th, 2024. My guest today is James P. Womack. Now, Jim Womack really needs no introduction, I think, uh, for this audience here, but he is the founder of the Lean Enterprise Institute, LEI. He founded them in 1987, and he remains a senior advisor to LEI. Back in the late 80s, Jim and Dan Jones led MIT's International Motor Vehicle Research Program, which introduced the term lean to describe Toyota's revolutionary management system. Based on that research, Womack co-authored The Machine That Changed the World in 1990, Lean Thinking, 1996, Lean Solutions, 2005, and Seeing the Whole Value Stream in 2011. Um, bio should also include the book Gemba Walks as published and updated by LEI. Now, Jim, over time has been, and going back to the beginning of the podcast, Jim was really gracious and helpful to me. Um, He was an early guest on this podcast before I really had any reason to to know him and vice versa. Uh, He first appeared in episode 12 in late 2006 when we talked about um, his observations and thoughts about lean in China. Today is his eighth appearance on the podcast, seven times solo, and once, most recently, last September, he was part of a group who did a post-game show conversation uh, with me, Katie Anderson, and Jamie V. Parker after the GE Lean Mindset event. So I've, I've seen and talked with Jim uh, many times over the past decade. It's, it's totally my fault that I haven't had him back here on the podcast um, really since 20. 11. When I asked him to come back to help celebrate 500 episodes, he quickly agreed. He made time, um, even though he uh, was recording this um, from Vietnam. So I appreciate that. I appreciate everything Jim has done. I'll, I'll have him back again much sooner than the last gap between appearances. So um, you can find uh, links to Jim's books and, and more information in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 499. Well, Jim, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> it's good, good to have you back here again. Uh, we've We've talked fairly frequently over, over these years. It's been a long time since I've had mm-hmm. you on the podcast, which is nobody's fault, but yeah. my own for not asking. So thank you for accepting the invitation uh, to, to, to come back yeah. here. And, and I think you know, a lot of people would be curious, um, you know, just for some updates on, you know, what, <laughs> what are you keeping busy with these days? Your role has evolved with LEI, but you're still very actively traveling right. the world and learning and helping people. Yeah. What's going on? Well, I do what comes up. The nice thing uh, about being my age is that um, not worried about the great long-term forecast. I just uh, do what comes up. It's not some master plan. Uh, right now, as I speak, I'm in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, uh, known to Americans from history as Saigon in South Vietnam, back in the 60s when I did a lot of thinking about this since I didn't want to come here. Uh, and this is a uh, gig for the Asia School of Business in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, where I am a visiting professor. And uh, the visiting part, they certainly got right. I'm not sure whether I'm really a professor. 
that school was set up by MIT under contract uh, starting back in 19, uh, 2016. And so I've come out every year, except the pandemic years, uh, to do a basically an A3 exercise with a group of mid-level executives who've gone back uh, mid-career for an MBA. And uh, we're at a garment company that's a retailer, garment company, threads, um, they, they make yarn, they make cloth, they make garments, uh, they've got retail uh, in uh, East Asia. And uh, the founder of that company is also one of the uh, board members of the school. So there's a kind of uh, uh, mutual support here. So anyway, it's good fun. Uh, this is a week of uh, trying to go from uh, Monday morning where the question is, what is the problem? company has given us a number of problems that uh, they would like some help on. And by Friday afternoon at Report Out, we hope to have gone through an A3 cycle of uh, trying to truly understand the background, what the problem is, not just the presenting problem, but the root cause problem, <coughs> what uh, might be done to countermeasure the problem, uh, trying to look at uh, three or four uh, alternatives in each case. Got 10 problems we're working on. And then uh, what kind of experiments could we run? To or what could the company run after we leave to uh, see if these uh, countermeasures are in fact countermeasures. Um, and it's interesting, these are <clears throat> typical uh, managers, mostly from East Asia, not entirely, but mostly from East Asia. And like everybody else in the world, they're good system one thinkers that uh, they just love to look at the situation, uh, maybe entirely presenting symptoms rather than actual causes, and uh, then they say, got it, I'm gonna match it up with the pattern that I'm used to, there's the countermeasure, except let's call it a solution, and uh, go do it, get her done. So it's fun to watch uh, as they try to, uh, uh, to behave in a different way. Yeah, who knows how much benefit there is here, but um, it gets me out of the snow in Boston. Uh, it's, uh, it's 97 here today, it's supposed to be 99 tomorrow. I kind of like that. I'm from Arkansas, and so I go out and take a walk, not in the heat uh, the day I just came back from my uh, walk through uh, Saigon. So anyway, I do that. I'm on the board at LEI, and I help out with LEI projects. Uh, I try to help um, Roberto Priolo with the um, Planet Lean. We talk about things they might do. And I um, have uh, some longstanding interest in organizations uh, and people. Uh, who I have worked with in the past. Um, was just talking with John Krafchick uh, on, on WhatsApp uh, about where uh, things are in the world. And uh, he's doing some interesting things. Who knows, there might be some common things there. Don't know yet. So uh, when things come up, I try to uh, jump on them. Uh, not writing the next book. I might write the next book, but not writing the next book right now. And uh, my wife is of a similar age, and we're in good health, and so it's kind of fun to uh, go. My wife's in France, as we speak, uh, brushing up her high school French in an immersion course. And by the time I get there in a week, well, uh, perhaps she'll be able to uh, help me communicate with the French, which I've never been able to do. Uh, so I'm going to drive around uh, for a while down in the south of France. That's about as um, gentle a thing as you can do. So that's it. Uh, you know, stuff. I do stuff. You do stuff. Um, we'll give a, a, a shout out and a congratulations to the team at Planet Lean. I saw they are just marking their five-year anniversary. Oh, it's 10th tenth, tenth anniversary. 10th year. Ah, oh, my mistake. Okay. Yeah. 10 years. Uh, boy, time flies. Yeah. 10 years. Congratulations. Yeah, no, no. It's, a, it's like they ought to have a larger audience. Uh, Roberto is a very talented editor. He comes up with all kinds of interesting stories. 
And uh, I keep saying I should get back to uh, writing for them. I used to do an item a month and uh, just have not done that in the last few years. thought I would do it during the pandemic. It seemed uh, like the pandemic would be a great time to write. And it turned out that if I don't have any gimba uh, recently in my head, I just don't, don't feel comfortable writing. So that uh, the worst thing about the uh, pandemic was the difficulty of gimba. And uh, so it slowed me down. But now I'm uh, back to um, what I call age-adjusted full speed. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then also looking back, I mean, thinking about milestones and, and years, Lean Thinking was originally published in 1996. Is that right? Uh, Lean Thinking was 96, Machine that Changed the World in 1990. Uh, Future of the Automobile, 1984. I don't think anybody on this uh, podcast read that. And other books, Lean Solutions and Seeing the Hole and Gimbal Walks and so forth. Yeah, no, but it goes a ways back. Um, that um, <clears throat> interesting thing about the machine book, which we did in 1990, Dan Jones and Dan Roos which was the summation of the first part of the MIT International Motor Vehicle Program. That kept on going until 2008 when all the car company sponsors were trying to avoid uh, bankruptcy and, and cut their contributions. But a very interesting book that it really described a complete system, um, an enterprise system, a lean enterprise that uh, had a product and process development component and a supplier uh, alignment and development component, the customer support component and a general management component, and also a fulfillment that's from order through the production process to delivery component. And the world read it as a book about factories. <laughs> because the assembly plant survey was so tangible and everybody went on the fourth grade uh, car plant tour, I guess. Uh, so quite amazing to me that uh, the book says very clearly, if you really want to get the full result, you need to do the whole system. And uh, nobody got that. Pretty amazing that Toyota got it. They didn't need to get it from me. So it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, what uh, people hear. And uh, the same thing with the... Um, Lean Thinking book that uh, what they heard was all tools, just a tool book. It's like going to Sears back in the old days with your dad and get some tools, and you go home and you examine your tools and you take your tools apart and never build anything. But uh, by golly, you got a lot of tools, and uh, everybody's got the shadow board uh, with this, uh, you know, the end on here and the Kanban there, all marked off, and you know, uh, and then <laughs> they're not used, but you got a full set. So that's uh, the, one of the curious things that has happened uh, uh, on this journey. Yeah. And I, I promise at some point we'll, we'll, we'll get to some, you know, forward looking comments perhaps, mm -hmm. but while we're, we're taking a, a look back here, um, we, we did in episode 19 have a, a, a discussion around um, revisiting the machine that changed the world. So I'll invite mm -hmm. the listener to, to go back and check out episode 19 mm -hmm. with whatever archaic technology we were using to record. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Back. Um, if that was like almost, uh, that was like 17 years ago. And, um, mm -hmm. I, I was also reflecting or remembering the other day. And in fact, I, I still somewhere have the paper handouts from mm -hmm. uh, you coming to speak. It, it's been roughly 25 years since we had invited you to come speak to a class I was a student in, at MIT in the then mm -hmm. leaders, mm -hmm. leaders for Manufacturing program, now called yeah, yeah. Leaders for Global yeah. Operations. I know I have the paper yeah. handouts with my scribbled notes somewhere. I need to, mm -hmm. it would be fun to look at. 
So appreciate you coming and, and giving uh, an introduction to, to lean thinking. Um, a lot of my classmates, I'm not blaming them for anything. A lot of them went back to Boeing, which is maybe mm-hmm. more of a, uh, a current day yeah. discussion of uh, yeah. what Boeing may have learned and possibly forgot over time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Boeing is the classic case of the company that uh, tried a lot of tools. Uh, the Shingejitsu guys made a fortune out there. Um, you know, the, one of the metaphors that's uh, always, or the image that's always lived with me was that they tried to install moving assembly lines uh, for most everything. I think not on the 4-7, but I went out to, at some point and they had a, a little tractor crawler that was pulling a 767 through this uh, big assembly hall. And uh, as they got to the very end, uh, the last plane on the line was just full of missing parts, missing flaps, missing engines, missing rotors. <laughs> and so it was comical. So I, the general manager was there to keep me under control while walking through. And I said, what did you accomplish with your moving assembly line? Which Shingy always advocated as a forcing mechanism. It would force people to uh, get the part situation under control. And he said, well, we get the building, get the airplane to the rework building a lot faster. <laughs> said, well, and that, that's what the man actually said. And he didn't yeah. mean that as a joke. Right. Yeah, well, you know, we can get them over to the rework building and check out, uh, you know, a lot faster. Well, that's not quite what we had in mind. So, uh, by the way, I don't know what happened on the Boeing thing. Let's not speculate too much. But um, they've always had a lot of fuselage damage shipping those uh, uh, three seven fuselages across the country from Spirit and Wichita to uh, Renton, and uh, a lot of damage. Uh, and indeed, uh, there is in fact a uh, FAA approved bullet repair, bullet hole repair uh, process. And so I don't know whether that plane, uh, the reason they had to take the door plug out was because there had been damage to the fuselage on the way. Uh, clearly, it was something they hardly ever did because the Boeing folks didn't know how to do it and certainly not how to put it back. Uh, but good grief. Um, you know, this is 2024. You can check the calendar. I'm just sure that's right. 2024. And these um, rookie errors that uh, don't seem to uh, get better and maybe get worse. Um, so anyway, that's um, look, and that's, it's just such a shame for the country. That's it's not right that these guys can see. So if you will, relentlessly incompetent. And um, a lot of people tried to help them. But uh, I tried to help them. So I do have some um, something to, um, you know, complain about. They weren't very receptive. I told them a few things and they said, time for you to leave. And uh, that was that. Yeah. Now, I mean, and this is, you know, reported in the news from Boeing executive comments. So this is not speculation. You mentioned the rework building. What they're calling it these days is uh, the shadow factory. And, and, and the executive comment was that there were there were more hours of labor content being spent mm-hmm. reworking planes than had been mm-hmm. spent initially assembling them, mm-hmm. which yeah. is mind-boggling. Yes, it is mind-boggling. Um, how can it be? But look, the, the mentality of the management never changed, uh, and the relationship with the union never changed. And uh, they really thought they couldn't fail. In almost any other com- company that wasn't in a tight, tight duopoly would have failed, right? <laughs> if just a regular company in a truly competitive market uh, had this kind of performance, they would be gonzo. But all there is out there is Airbus, and the airlines, uh, the last thing they want is to have one provider. So, you know, it's uh, 
amazing what you can get away with when you don't have any competition. Yeah. They're uh, too big to fail. Applying that phrase now, mm-hmm. I guess, not to banks. <laughs> yeah. To yeah. Boeing. But um, yeah, the, I mean, the initial, not just one other you know thing about uh, Boeing, the initial, initial NTSB report kind of formalized what had started off as basically internet rumor, but now it's the NTSB saying that yeah, uh, that um, there had been some riveting defects, I believe, mm-hmm. that traced back to spirit. So to yeah. take care of that, they had to remove the door plug. Yeah. And you know, Boeing yeah. and Spirit are working side by side, and the door plug got put back on without four of those retention bolts. Um, yeah. So yeah. It happened well, on it's the a Boeing. non-standard job, but probably, yeah. yeah, to do it. Well, you know, look, it's a, it's a job that was, um, you know, what they uh, used to call traveled work, mm-hmm. uh, that you got to the point in assembly where you ought to be installing something and you haven't got the part. And so, therefore, you go ahead and uh, screw on the access panel, but do remember to fix it uh, nine stations down. And then nine stations down, the guys are going to do it. I've actually never done that job. So there's a potential for quality and safety problems right there. So here's a nice thing that uh, they took the door plug out. The plane probably kept moving. uh, And then the guys who put it in had probably never done that job. And gee whiz, they thought it just snapped snugly in place, you know. It turned out you needed some bolts, but who knew? And somebody left them in the box. Um, anyway, so look, nobody got uh, hurt. Um, you know, kind of amazing. There's a lot of redundancy in airplanes. Right. And, Thanks, um, so that's, um, yeah. Look, I mean, look, Boeing planes haven't been just routinely falling out of the sky. Uh, right now, it's more a business problem and a cost problem uh, that it could become a safety problem. But um, that it, hasn't at least as far as I know so far. Yeah. And you know, to aviation's credit, like you said, nobody was nobody was killed, nobody was seriously hurt in that mm-hmm. incident, but they take it as an opportunity yeah. of learning where, you know, in, in healthcare where things aren't publicly visible, kind of a, a near miss, if you will, um, mm-hmm. doesn't always trigger the same sort mm-hmm. of learning because in, in a way it doesn't have to yeah. sadly. Yeah. But um, I, I had solicited some questions uh, from from people on LinkedIn, and you, you mentioned um, union. And, and this direction, this question didn't come from mm-hmm. Boeing people, but from uh, a couple of different people asked a similar question. You know, in their organizations here in 2024, they're struggling mm-hmm. um, to influence a union to start embracing mm-hmm. lean. You know, the union's been sort of mm-hmm. actively against it from the start. Mm-hmm. In your mm-hmm. travels, I mean, do what, what advice would you have for, for leaders or a company in that situation? How to engage the union positively? Mm-hmm. Well, my experience has been that uh, basically companies get the union they deserve. That uh, if you actually do respect your people and you treat them right, uh, there's always going to be some friction over economics. But uh, if you don't respect your people and you don't treat them right, well, then a large part of unionization is about respect. And I think uh, people are just approaching it as an economic thing about take-home pay. Uh, just don't get that. That uh, And by the way, this is a weird way to get respect that doesn't really work very well because, in fact, you get contempt <laughs> from the company uh, when you sign in as a union member. Um, but, you know, the... Um, 
Numi guys worked perfectly okay with UAW. To say that uh, UAW was opposed to uh, lean from the very beginning, that's just not true. Uh, there were two sides to the UAW. One side was quite uh, uh, really uh, adamantly opposed, and the other side uh, kind of, uh, um, you know, the, the people that I talked to uh, said, hey, let's get on with this. And, I, you know, of all the ups and downs that NUMI had over the years, I don't think the, uh, the union was a problem, whereas at Van Nuys and at uh, Fremont before, and those were the California plants, uh, the union relations were just horrible. And they had, you know, thousands and thousands of grievances, and the uh, union members just took great pleasure in filing grievances that all had to be adjudicated and just dragged down the whole system. So, I, look, I continue to think that uh, you get uh, what, you know, it's a reciprocal of, um, you know, what do you think? And uh, the IAM was always pretty cold on this, but um, I was going at a time when, you know, the guys I was talking with in the IAM were saying, hey, look, we can do this. Uh, we're trying to project jobs. We're not completely oblivious to productivity. Um, but boy, uh, those uh, managers sure don't respect us. And by the way, they don't know anything either. Uh, that's the other thing that uh, managers who don't know Gimba and don't know the work, uh, it's just hard to have respect. I had a guy on an unnamed uh, aerospace company that uh, I had to go help once because the CEO told me to go help him. And he was a hypo, hypo. A uh, guy who had gone to a brand name business school and he had to do a rotation through production and through purchasing and so forth. And uh, he absolutely had zero knowledge of the process that he was managing. And uh, as we took a walk, it just got more and more embarrassing. And they finally pulled me aside and said, Look, you don't get it. I'm a strategy guy. And I went to a premier business school and they promised me if I can just get through this rotation, I can do the job that I've been trained to do. And I said, well, gee, <laughs> you, know, you deserve to get through this rotation. You're building flight safety critical parts. Yeah. And you have not got a clue how anything works here. Uh, and by the way, all your people are laughing at you, all the, all the rank and file. I mean, why wouldn't they be laughing at you? Okay. So, uh, you know, if you're going <laughs> to have the attitude that you should be respected because you're a hypo, and you went to a brand name business school and you don't know anything about anything. Uh, well, gosh, just exactly why would you expect that? It seems like, you know, a lot of these companies, I saw this at General Motors. There's there's long, long, long history of strife mm -hmm. that you know, yeah. can be hard to reboot right. a relationship. I've seen That's times right. where a leadership yeah, change, not to mm -hmm. the scale of mm -hmm. NUMI, yep. is an opportunity to try to reboot mm -hmm. that relationship. Right, right. And actually, you have to say, the, you know, some, one of the sad things about GM was it was a better company the day they filed for bankruptcy than it had ever been. And they had made quite a lot of progress uh, after 2000. But uh, it took them about 15 years to get from neutral into dry and uh, totally unnecessary. Uh, 1984, when we were launching our uh, future of the auto book, uh, Jack Smith came to give a talk at MIT, then the head of GM Europe, but became the president and the chairman, and said, uh, with the NUMI thing, we figured it out. We figured out what their tricks are. We know everything about how they do it. Now all we have to do is deploy it. And that was 1984, and it wasn't until after 2000 that they actually had any serious uh, success in trying to deploy. 
So, I mean, I don't know. How do you explain that? Mm-hmm. But there it is. Um, going back again, this is about 18 years ago. We did an episode together, episode 12, where you were talking about lean in China. I think you had been traveling mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, what, what are your your high level thoughts on 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 how China in manufacturing and lean has evolved over these past eighteen years? Well, first thing to say is that I have always felt, I still feel, that the world is a better, happier place if all countries succeed, rather than some succeed and some fail, and indeed, in the extreme uh, case, become a failed state, which you could argue is kind of where Russia is right now. Um, so that uh, I thought it was a good thing for the Chinese to learn a bit. And we have an institute uh, in uh, Shanghai that we've had now for many years. Marcus Chow, wonderful guy, uh, grew up, was born in Shanghai, grew up in Taiwan, came to the States, was one of GM's key guys in China, and retired and came to run an institute. So I've been all over China, good grief. I have been through everything you can imagine. And uh, to get started, uh, what was so striking was just how horrible the management was. Uh, just total top-down command control. And uh, just no, no feedback loops at all. Zero respect for the employees. Um, and over time, uh, they've gotten better. The foreign investors uh, were the key transmission mechanism of uh, you know, the, the Fords and the GMs uh, that went in and had their uh, kind of watered-down version of Toyota and Toyota. Uh, has been there for a very long time. Toyota had a parts plant uh, before 1978 when uh, Deng Xiaoping took over. Um, so that um, there's been some improvement, uh, but I think uh, in general that uh, the story of Chinese manufacturing has kind of been the story of General Motors that uh, they could just never quite get their heads around it. Uh, and now, of course, uh, some of the entrepreneur startups like BYD uh, seem to be doing better. Um, but the other part of the China thing was that, um, you know, from the American standpoint, it was just the happy hunting ground for labor arbitrage. So your American managers in the 70s, 80s, 90s, teens, uh, aughts, teens, uh, you have a choice between trying to fix the mess you've created and just uh, moving on, uh, selling out and going to China to get your need. And so we started talking years ago about lean math, said, you know, before you move to China, do some lean math. And the thing you should ask yourself is, what if we applied the best, uh, if you will, of lean to our current operation? What would that do to our productivity, quality, and lean time? And if we could do that, do we still need to go to China? And then if you think, well, yeah, I still need to go to China, well, then please calculate the total cost. Because uh, so many American companies, the CEO said purchasing, you know, I want 20% of our buy from China or 30% of our buy from China within a year or two years or three years. And uh, the way they calculated cost was uh, piece part price plus slow freight, slow, slow freight. So then you say, well, gee, uh, isn't there some country risk here, some currency risk? Uh, isn't there a risk that your supplier is going to steal your IP and come into the business against you? Da, 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 da. Well, all of those costs were written down to zero. And all those uh, engineers that went over to deal with quality problems and all of that uh, excess inventory that you had to carry, including the uh, 16 to 20 days across the Pacific, uh, that was all written to zero. Um, So it's pretty easy to make the case that you'd be better off. Uh, My uh, longtime um, 
friend and uh, helper with LEI, Matt uh, Lovejoy, had a little uh, uh, dye injection operation up in uh, the north side of Chicago. And uh, he had a uh, customer, one of his big customers was Kohler, which is right over the Wisconsin border. And uh, the CEO of Kohler, this was now 20, 25 years ago, uh, directed purchasing to buy 20% of their stuff from China within 18 months. And so Matt happened to also have an identical plant in Shanghai and another one in Sao Paulo and a third one in Porto, in uh, Portugal. And uh, they called him up and said, we want you to make our stuff in China. And Matt said, I'm an hour and a half away and I'm going to use the exact same equipment and same molds for a product that has no labor content. <laughs> uh, why do you think it's better to do it in China? And they said, well, we don't care. Our CEO has said we're going to do this. And we're going to do this. Uh, our KPI is the percentage of our buy that is sourced from China. Okay. Good grief. Good grief. So anyway, uh, there's been just uh, a generation of foolishness. And people may be a little bit uh, wised up, although I, you know, here in Vietnam, they're certainly getting a big boom out of uh, Western companies transferring stuff to uh, Vietnam to uh, get away from China. And there, the wage here is about half of the Chinese wage now. Um, and the geopolitics are different. And uh, they're hoping that uh, they won't get put on some tariff list uh, the way the Chinese are. So that uh, the notion that uh, now the uh, U.S., and by the way, it's either party. Everybody is kind of hot to trot on the, the China problem. Um, you know, that just because you're not going to get it from China does not mean you're going to make it in the States. And by the way, if we really actually tried to repatriate uh, a large fraction of the outsourced manufacturing, um, it would be a train wreck. This is going to take uh, a long time. It doesn't make any difference what incentives are given or what tariffs are put on. Uh, just take a long time to uh, get it uh, back to what would be more reasonable. In the uh, machine book, 1990, we proposed a very simple concept, which was a world of regions. Uh, that we noted that uh, there were going to be wage gradients for a long time to come. But in every region, there was some cheap labor. And so in Europe, the uh, Far East, uh, you know, the Far East of Europe, and in the U.S., Latin America, and in uh, the Japanese, uh, were the, you know, the kings of the hill in Asia at that point, but they needed some cheap labor. There was plenty to be found, for example, in Vietnam. Uh, so that really labor-intense product would go to uh, low-wage countries, and then the high-tech, uh, capital-intense stuff could be done at home because there wasn't any labor content in it to begin with from a touch-labor standpoint. So maybe that's where we're headed. Um, it's not a um, such a clean situation as I've just described, but um, uh, that. Look, my ideal would be that uh, people take another look and say, gee, how much could we do? close to the customer if we could just uh, actually seriously execute on this lean stuff. And I hope at least a few people will uh, actually think about that. And uh, who knows, uh, maybe the right thing will be done at some point. Hmm. You, you, you talked, Jim, about Numi. You mentioned uh, BYD, uh, Chinese producer mm -hmm. of uh, electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. starting to give Tesla a lot of competition. Um, and it sort of begs the question, um, have you ever been invited to return to the NUMI building to do a gimbal walk with the Tesla people who are now in that? Oh, no, 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 they would never invite me. 
<laughs> well, you know, that, uh, that Musk was just adamant that uh, none of those Toyota jerks were going to have any role in this thing at all. And, uh, you know, he actually said, uh, I don't know, two years ago, said, I know more about manufacturing than anybody on the planet. He did say. Why do people not fall down laughing with this nonsense? I mean, just complete baloney. Um, but no, no, I haven't been vast back. And at this point, honestly, I don't have much patience. Um, uh, look, I, uh, good luck, guys. But um, I think it's going to get harder rather than easier. Yeah. Um, have you had a chance to go to Gemba at Rivian? Uh, our, our friend John Shook was helping yeah. Rivian, different auto yeah. electric vehicle maker. Yeah. Well, my old main man, John Kraftick, is on the board at Rivian now. So um, he was the, the guy who was uh, the head of uh, the Waymo uh, business uh, for Google uh, for, what, five, five and a half years after he left Hyundai. Um, no, I haven't been back. I was there uh, just shortly after launch, and I uh, picked up my Rivian. Guy Parsons and I had decided we would go get one, and we would share it in the sense that I would drive it till I got bored with it, and then he would take it over at, uh, as if we had uh, bought it together to begin with, which we did. But uh, look, it's a, it's a kind of classic thing that uh, the venture community just has one thing in mind, and that's to get to the IPO. And to get to the IPO, they tell you, you've got to have an actual production product, which is to say a real production parts that were produced in a real factory. And you have to sh have that to show that you, you're over the hump. And now everything's going to be great. And so you see it over and over again that Tesla, that's part of been their problem, that um, they have to go fast. And when you go fast, of course, you leave out all of the things that you're going to need to do, and then you go very slow in the ramp. So, uh, you know, they, they want to go fast to go fast. And I've said to everybody who's ever called me from those places, mostly hardly anybody from Tesla, that you have a choice. You can go slow to go fast, or you can go fast to go slow. Uh, which you want to do? And the answer is that the smart play from the timing of the IPO is go fast to go slow. So that... Um, you know, when uh, Rivian um, went to uh, the public, uh, the deal was we've got 140,000 units of capacity and we'll get there, you know, real fast. And so last year, they, you know, three years in, they got 70. <laughs> and they've been Toyota. Well, they wouldn't have produced any the first year mm -hmm. and they would have produced 140 the second year. <laughs> and uh, that's just uh, seems to be just impossible uh, for people to uh, deal with that. Uh, it's just, it just amazing to me how little venture people know or care about how anything is actually done because it's all, all about uh, spin. And uh, it's supposed to be such an incredibly efficient system where nine out of 10 companies funded never pay anything. Uh, so, but, you know, it's just exasperating that Musk has uh, sort of normalized this notion of production health. Mm -hmm. uh, with Elon and his sleeping bag out on the line trying to figure out why the totally automated uh, Model 3 uh, line didn't work at all, which is how he got the tent. Mm -hmm. And the tent was just a completely conventional manual line run inside a tent to save their butt uh, because they weren't going to be able to make anything on that highly capital-intensive line. You know, they threw out a billion bucks worth of stuff. Um, I mean, seriously, just ripped it up and threw it out because they could never get it to work. After Elon had said, by the way, you remember knows more about manufacturing than anyone on the planet, that it was uh, the guys would just try harder and work longer hours and it would uh, 
you know, sleep at the end of the line until they got it fixed, and none of that ever happened. So, you know, it's really interesting. Here's just something I was thinking about the other day, uh, the reality war. That, um, you know, Steve Jobs famously had a reality war that he could solemnly look at people and say, you know, you can do this. You can do this if you really try. And the fact is, Jobs didn't know how to do it, and they didn't know how to do it. But there's a certain fraction of the human population that really responds to that. And so Musk has got his reality warp, uh, which is actually pretty similar, and some people respond to it. But then before we get too far gone on those guys, uh, Henry Ford had a reality (laughs) that he didn't know how to do all that stuff that they did at the time of Highland Park. Uh, He would tell people it could be done and then say, I'll be back in an hour. And then, by the way, Taichi Ono really had a reality war. Uh, he didn't have any idea what to do in these Kaizen projects. And it's not to say he couldn't have figured it out. But mainly, he just found a few folks who really, really uh, got wound up with that. And they did things that uh, nobody knew how to do at the beginning. And they did them very quickly. So it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, so much of the time in life, we spend time debating about whether something can be done at all. And then the second that one company does it, well, everybody else in the industry figures out how to do it in practically no time. So that uh, the problem, the, the point of the reality war is to simply convince people that it can be done. And then it turns out if they stop thinking about why it can't be done and put all their energy into how to do it, some of it can be done. But there were still lots of uh, things that didn't work. You remember Lake Ono? out behind the mother plant there in Toyota City, where supposedly Ono at night buried all of his mistakes. And uh, Henry Ford had a lot of, uh, you know, things that didn't work, and Musk has had a lot of things that didn't work, and Jobs had a lot of things that didn't work. So it just seems to be something that uh, humans um, do, Mm -hmm. reality warping. And there's some good in it, uh, and, uh, well, some bad. There was another question um, that came in via LinkedIn. Mark Sneeringer uh, was wondering, what companies, Jim, do you consider to be lean exemplars in the U.S. right now? Oh, well, on some days, Toyota, some days. Um, well, you know, I'm, uh, I've had this odd kind of thing that on one level, I get invited to go everywhere. And on another level, I'm never invited. And the organization's never invited me is Danaher. And uh, I got into a trap where I was a friend of Art Byrne and um, some of the other guys, uh, George Koenigsegger, who thought that Art should be head of Danaher, that uh, the the Rails brothers had been the uh, co-CEOs in the early days. Then they decided to move up to be chairs and vice chairs and so forth and have uh, someone else be the CEO. And so there was a, a smackdown between Art and George Sherman. And uh, George won. And uh, so I called up George and said, gee, I'd like to put you in the Lean Thinking book. Okay, this was back in 1994. And, uh, you know, so can I come take a look? And um, George Sherman, what a guy. Uh, he said, I'm going to tell you what I think of this. And he put his cell phones, or he does his cell phones, on top of the motor case in his 911 and went driving. And I could listen to him uh, revving it. And after a while, he picked up the phone and said, what do you think of my cams? And I said, well, about what I think of you, George, uh, that all that's unnecessary. (laughs) And so I was never allowed. And in fact, actually, I was told I would never appear on the property. 
And I've been, by the way, every company has a back door because there's somebody in the company that doesn't like the senior management. So I have been in a couple of Danaher plants, found them most unimpressive. But I was there because they were in big trouble and uh, they were scared of what was going to happen when headquarters found out. And so, therefore, they took the chance of letting me in to get a second opinion. But anyway, uh, maybe Danaher is what they claim. Okay. I just don't know, but I haven't been there because uh, no one has ever, uh, you know, let me in. And then there are lots of people who've got pieces, uh, who've done things. Um, you know, if you go to a General Motors plant, they're pretty good. Uh, they're not quite Toyota, but they're pretty good, and they're put it good enough. I mean, the GM wouldn't have failed because of the plants back in 2008. They failed because of the sins of the past. Uh, that they had just run up a tremendous amount of debt and, uh, of course, the pitching cost and all that. Um, so who's out there that I think is uh, the ideal lean company? Uh, I haven't seen one, don't expect to see one. Um, that uh, Toyota, by the way, is not a completely constant thing. They sometimes are a bit better, sometimes a bit worse. Um, I went to a Kyushu in uh, 2019 to the mother plant uh, Lexus, uh, where Mr. Uh, uh, Yokoi, who had been the head of TSSC, his final job in the company was to try to go back and get them on track. They had won all of the power awards for quality for years and did very well on productivity. And then they kind of fell off and uh, got the wrong leadership in. And so he was sent down there to try to fix it up. And I went right at the end of his tenure because he wanted to show me what he had done. And uh, that was the best manufacturing I have ever seen or ever expected to see. <laughs> They had three lines, and they were running um, at 99% uh, uptime. 99% uptime with quality uh, judged to be the best assembly plant quality by power, and uh, with really just no rework area. And, I mean, that's hard to do. By the way, on each of the lines, they had about 1,100 and-on pulls a day, and yet they were running the line at 99%, which means that um, you know, almost all of the Andon uh, pulls were responded to within the, you know, 60 or 70 second cycle time in a way that they could safely and uh, with high quality keep running because the team leader came running up and figured out a, a short-term uh, countermeasure. Um, wow, uh, that that's the best I ever saw. And I don't expect to ever see anything better. I mean, how can you be better? How can you run 100% when you've got 1,100 people online? And you're doing four different products, by the way, that uh, everything has to be kitted uh, because it's all, uh, you know, being done in, in mixed model. So, you know, it's, um, it, I'd love to give you a list, but I don't have sure. a list. Sure. So we've talked a little bit, of, uh, you know, we've looked back a little bit, kind of talked a little bit about current state. You've shared some thoughts about what you hope might happen coming forward, um, you know, mm -hmm. in, in manufacturing, um, maybe mm -hmm. you know, one last question here. Um, maybe th th this isn't, hasn't exactly formally been an A3, but if we think about, you know, possible countermeasures or action items, mm -hmm. we haven't really done a lot of root cause analysis, but Paul mm -hmm. Critchley, well, you shared a little bit, but Paul Critchley asked, what do you think that we as a, a lean community could or should do better today and going forward? Mm -hmm. Well, I think we've got the tools. Everybody knows about the tools. Uh, by the way, everybody should read Ed Shine's uh, Organizational Culture and Leadership. 
Cook's written a long time ago. I think he just finished the fifth edition when he died about uh, 15 months ago. But uh, he makes this, uh, in any culture, he says, look, they're artifacts, which is to say practices that people follow. And then those are justified by principles. But then underneath it are basic beliefs of what people really feel about uh, how to deal with people, what's possible, and so forth. And so I would say we've uh, done an earnest job of trying to uh, acquaint uh, everybody everywhere with uh, the toolkit. Everybody everywhere. And yet you see things all the time that they just didn't either get the principle or they didn't get the basic beliefs. Uh, one of the most amazing things that we populated the world with production control boards. And uh, I have been on so many boardwalks, that's B-O-R-E-D, boardwalks, uh, in which they walk past uh, board after board and the same problems are written over in the right column. And uh, you say, well, why don't we just work on one of those today? And they say, no, 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 we're saving them for the OPEX team, which comes around uh, periodically and accumulates them. And then they do Pareto analysis to look for the low-hanging fruit. And that's the efficient way to do this. So, wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're not going to be in business by the time, but the problem you're going to fix will be gone because the problem, the, the product runs already over. Uh, so it's just amazing. How could anybody not understand that the whole point of the production control board is real-time problem resolution. Mm -hmm. And um, just, uh, he had a funny case with a guy who had just left Toyota, uh, been a, an operating guy and went to another big company, had a big OPEX team. And we went out the first day for the boardwalk. And uh, there was a problem that was there. And he said, how long has it been there? They kept running out of one part. And it turns out it'd been weeks. And uh, he said, uh, the Toyota guy said, well, look, why don't we just, uh, where'd the part come from? It came from somebody in the plant, right? Oh, yeah, it's a guy around the corner. So let's go look. And I said, we haven't got time for that. I mean, you know, that uh, OPEX will come around. So he went trotting off around the corner and uh, came back in about 10 minutes and said, gee whiz, you've got two bin replenishment, but there's only one bin. So that's why you're running apart. I mean, come on. And gee whiz, I mean, in that company, which is a household name company, and this is not that long ago, you saw that kind of thing all the time. So you got the production control board. Uh, you got the obey room where the lights are out because it's never used. Uh, you've got uh, a so-called pull system that actually is not a pull system. It's just uh, managers uh, trying to counteract MRP in real time. Um, so that uh, the part we didn't get um, was the uh, you know basic. Uh, you know, uh, daily management for stability and for real-time problem resolution, uh, improvement management, uh, which is not rework, that uh, so many things that are called Kaizen, called Kaizen, that uh, the company was performing at this level and something happened, and then they got it back up to that level, and they called that Kaizen, but in fact, this level and this level are the same level. Nothing was improved. They just got it back on track. Okay, so that's problem solving. Right? That's not Kaizen. Kaizen is about a sustainable improvement in important dimensions of performance. So people don't even know what Kaizen is. How could that be? Um, and then, by the way, just uh, this final thing that um, we still have this amazing um, thing that we got from Taylor about there are a few smart people who do, by the way, on the Kaizen team. And then there are a whole bunch of dummies that are just told what to do. 
so that uh, the notion that just regular people, you know, high school degree, GED people, uh, if taught uh, the Toyota 8-point uh, problem-solving uh, method, uh, could actually identify some of their own problems right where they are and could actually do something about them. And that line managers, if they weren't spending all of their time uh, fighting fires, would actually have time to think about how to improve the process. So what we did was say, no, uh, line managers are just scorekeepers. And they check attendance and they uh, look and see how they're doing on their KPIs. And to make their KPIs, um, they're going to do what it takes, uh, which may not be good for the company or the customer, but uh, that's what they're going to do. And then all the thinking is outsourced to the quality team or the uh, Kaizen team or the uh, industrial engineering team or whatever. And good grief, that's as bad as anything Taylor could have thought of. And there it is right in front of these ideas are great ideas, nothing wrong with them. People haven't come up with better ideas. Uh, it's a how do we do it a question, not what should we do. And uh, that uh, gives me hope for the long term. By the way, there's no shortage of Muda, and there's surely no shortage of Mura, uh, that uh, things just seem to be more churning than ever. And then that gives you Muri, which is overburdened, which you do with the tongue hanging out as you try to get through the um, waves of Mura. Um, so we're not going to run out of problems. If we had actually solved everything, I guess I'd be kind of sad because, <laughs> uh, gee, what, what, what are we going to do? Right. So the problems are still there. They're not, not getting uh, away. They're not going to go away on their own. Uh, we still got great methods. Uh, we just need to do a little reflection on why it's been so hard to get our management thinking and our attitudes toward people uh, to move in the direction that actually makes it possible to uh, consistently uh, reduce waste, reduce moral, reduce Murray, and make a better world. That's what we need to do. Yeah. You, um, and maybe this will just lead into a, a final question here, Jim. Thank you for joining us late in the evening uh, from, from Vietnam. Um, where you're talking about putting out fires, uh, I, I looked up the exact quote. It made me think of Dr. Deming, who, who said, mm -hmm. stamping out fires is a lot of fun, but it's only putting things back the way they were. That's the mm -hmm. same idea. Right. Um, yeah. did, did, did you ever get to meet Dr. Deming? I forget if yes, I asked. Yes, I did him. actually meet uh, the, the good doctor that I went to Deming study. And that was one of the most amazing things I ever saw. In Detroit, it must have been in 91, just after the machine book came out. And somebody invited me to go to Deming study. And when I came in, they said, you will sit at the right hand of Deming. Uh, good grief. Well, this was, <laughs> this was a, a promotion I was not expecting. And Deming was 90 or 91. And it was the funniest thing I think I've ever seen that uh, they're doing Deming study. And Deming was uh, seated at a table sideways to the audience. And there were hundreds of people in the audience. And then there was a stage uh, with the dais and there was a, a master of ceremonies. And uh, the guy got up and said, we're here to um, talk about uh, Deming's out of the crisis. And uh, our first speaker will explicate, uh, you know, chapter six, page uh, 14, uh, verse nine. <laughs> and this guy gets up and starts to talk about what Deming really meant. And there are people in the audience that start shouting at him. That's wrong. That's not what Deming meant. You don't understand Deming. Seriously, they're standing up and shouting. Huh? Deming's sitting right there. Right. <laughs> and he's paying no attention whatsoever. There's a beautiful pad of paper, almost like vellum, and a gold pen. He gets out of his uh, suit. You know, he's wearing a black suit. 
And he starts doing math. And I'm sitting right next to him. It's this notation I've never seen. I don't know what this was. But uh, I think about cross it out. Think about this. And then he'd do some more math. Paid no attention, whatever, to the proceedings. And then at the end, uh, the moderator got up and said, well, that's all we can do tonight. Uh, when can we meet again, Dr. Deming? How about uh, the 24th of April? which point Deming reaches in his coat, looks at his calendar and says, yep, that'll do. And then gets up and walks out. Um, now, is that, is that, <laughs> does that explain why Deming's study died out right after Deming died? Um, and look, that's, a, I think uh, Dr. Deming was a good fellow and he did some great stuff, but there was also a fair bit of hokum, um, which people just had to have a savior. Uh, to follow on that, uh, you know, theology, that's one thing, but in manufacturing, um, that's another. So I thought, my gosh, um, wow, need to know when to quit. And by the way, I, I think about it every time I go out to uh, to give a talk. I say, geez, you know, maybe I've, uh, you know, left my fastball at home and I wouldn't want to wind up where Dimming wound up. And by the way, he was not senile. He absolutely understood what was going on, but he was just off on a weird uh, wavelength. And uh, boy, I don't want to wind up there. Mm. So, um, you know, cautionary tale. Yeah. And you don't want to be anyone's savior either. No, no, thanks. That's not my thing. I, look, I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> it's, it, it's not going to happen. Well, Jim, thank hey, you. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to say just one thing about the future that uh, seems to me there's a lot of, um, you know, let me, let me promote an idea. Uh, which I call emotional hijunka. It seems to me that most of us are just way too up and down, that uh, we have a bad patch and we think things are worse than they actually are. We have a good patch and we think they're better. Um, but uh, you look at the kind of uh, hype curve that goes with things. We've got the GPT thing now, which is going to take everybody's job away. And uh, you know, we've got AI and that uh, whatever GPT doesn't take away, well, the rest of AI will take away. And uh, we've got a world that's out of control and uh, that uh, the things are just more and more chaotic and they're more and more black swans. And it just, uh, and, you know, come on, that um, what we know about new technologies is that the immediate effect is generally much less than had been predicted and the long-term effect is greater. But it's all a long-term thing. And uh, the notion that uh, the world is getting to be less stable and somehow or other all the shortages that come up are due to JIT, which I find pretty amusing because hardly anybody's done JIT except Toyota and its suppliers. Um, you know, come on. Uh, these are problems. We've had problems before. Uh, we'll have problems in the future. We're doing okay. Uh, everybody's not going to lose their job. The singularity is not here yet. Uh, you know, where the, the robots take over. Um, There's just a lot of uh, self-inflicted headspace uh, gloom that I think is just not realistic or accurate. I've just gone through, I've had quite a lot to, uh, I, I didn't mention at the beginning that I spent a lot of time over at MIT in the last few years as a fellow in the mobility initiative, trying to rethink uh, mobility. And this amazing wave of uh, just crazy wild optimism about EVs and crazy wild optimism about autonomy. And uh, Dan Roos and I still talk to each other. Dan's uh, chugging away. He's 80, I don't know what is, you know, five or six now. Um, no, that's not right. He's, he's, he's probably 84. But anyway, 
when all of this stuff happened, which was really in 2009, when uh, suddenly Uber came off the campus and ride uh, asset sharing was possible, when the people at Google said, hey, we figured out the algorithms, we can really do autonomy. When uh, the people at Tesla said, hey, these lithium batteries we've got are good enough. Uh, there's just this sudden uh, notion that uh, incredible things are going to happen incredibly quickly. And Dan and I uh, said, this stuff is really interesting, really, really interesting. And it's really, really hard because it's socio-technical stuff. Each of these innovations requires people to really change their uh, what's inside their head with regard to how they deal with uh, the world. And so this is going to be incredibly hard but it's worth trying. And so then everything was just up and up and up. And now suddenly, it's just amazing, everybody in the car industry two years ago said that we'll have all electric vehicles by 2035. And now everybody says, oh no, maybe never. Um, and they, neither of those can be right, okay? So that's just uh, my uh, contribution to the broader public discussion is the idea of emotional hijunkum, that leveling is really good. Yeah. In production and product development and every other aspect of life, why don't you level your emotions mm-hmm. and uh, life might be better. Okay. Well, good food for thought there. I will take that to heart myself. So, um, Jim, thank you again for coming back on here. I wish you continued you know, safe travels on your work time and uh, gallivanting around in the south of France. That sounds wonderful. Yes, it does. <laughs> thank you. Uh, hey, let's keep talking. You've done right. what? Almost five hundred of these podcasts. Yep. Uh, we'll before just... you before you get to a thousand, well, let's do this again. Okay. Okay. Sooner than uh, well, we'll, we'll make the gap. Uh, my 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 guest hijunka. I will. Yeah. Gladly give you more slots in the uh, the podcast episode hijunka box. Okay. Thanks. Meet you here. All right. Okay. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.